Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. These vicious claims about me of inappropriate conduct with women are totally and absolutely false. These claims are all fabricated. They're pure fiction and they're outright lies. He totally denies it. He says it didn't happen. And, you know, you have to listen to him also. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. And I can tell you that some of the women that are complaining, I know how much he's helped them. The problem is that for this president, the victims are the attackers, the predators, and the assaulters. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. My name is Jamel Bowie. I'm Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's episode. Whether it's his tweets or news conference, President Trump is always talking, always putting words into the air. Some of them are benign. Most of them aren't. Trump's words include racist demagoguery, nuclear saber-rattling, attacks on private citizens, and Jeremy ads against anyone who might hold him accountable, from federal law enforcement to critical journalists. This week, for instance, Trump tweeted about Indianapolis Colts linebacker Edwin Johnson, who was killed in a car accident. The driver at fault was an undocumented immigrant, giving Trump fodder for his anti-immigrant rhetoric. This is just one of many such preventable tragedies, said the president. We must get the Dems to get tough on the border and with illegal immigration fast. It's tempting to treat this rhetoric as simply noise, verbal detritus from a president who can't tolerate silence and demands total attention. But Donald Trump isn't just a celebrity. He is the president. His words have weight in the world. They mean something. Republican voters treat them as guidance for what they should believe. Republican lawmakers take them as guidance for what they should do. Foreign adversaries and allies plan around them. Trump's words, in short, are kind of action. To explore the president's rhetoric and what it means for our politics and our democracy, we're going to speak with Jacob Levy, a professor of political theory at McGill University and author of a new essay exploring the impact of Trump's words. But before our conversation, we have some tweets. Wow. Senator Mark Warner got caught having extensive contact with a lobbyist for a Russian oligarch. Warner did not want a paper trail on a private meeting in London. He requested with steel a fraudulent dossier fame, all tied into crooked Hillary. Our military will now be stronger than ever before. We love and need our military and gave them everything and more. First time this has happened in a long time. Also means jobs, jobs, jobs. According to the New York Times, a Russian sold phony secrets on Trump to the U.S. Asking price, $10 million, brought down to $1 million to be paid over time. I hope 
People are now seeing and understanding what is going on here. It is all now starting to come out. Drain the swamp. People's lives are being shattered and destroyed by mere allegations. Some are true and some are false. Some are old and some are new. There is no recovery for someone falsely accused. Life and career are gone. Is there no such thing any longer as due process? Calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Our guest today to talk about President Trump's talk is Jacob Levy, a professor of political theory at McGill University and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to TrumpCast. Hi, Jamal. Thank you very much for having me. So, Jacob, I don't know when this was published necessarily. I think it was earlier in this week. But this morning, I read your essay on President Trump's rhetoric uh, called The Weight of the Words. You wrote it for the Niskanen Center. And I was immediately struck uh, just by the fact that it's not actually an argument I've seen all that often. I'll do a quick summary. Uh, The argument, as I can tell, is that the president's words, his rhetoric, they are political action and they do matter and they do count and they do have uh, an actual sort of material impact on how we experience the political moment and experience politics. But uh, I'd love to hear sort of your take on on the argument and what kind of inspired you um, to make this argument? Uh, that's, that's certainly a fair summary of it. I do in the essay distinguish among a couple of different audiences to whom I think words of elected officials, words of a president matter differently. In international affairs, diplomacy is really centrally how communication happens. That's what political action consists of. And when I saw in response to Trump's comments about African countries during the immigration debate, when I started to see commentators really trying to maintain, no, we're too sophisticated and too grown up to care that he used a bad word, when the next day, the African Union and the ambassadors of a number of African countries were expressing their vigorous protest, were lodging official complaints with the Trump administration. And when the U.S. is constantly trying to use its soft power and its cultural capital and the appeal of its moral standing in African diplomatic contests with the money that China is spreading around, that's one of the moments that really started to crystallize for me, that an attitude was emerging in a part of the American commentariat that tried to be very sophisticated by showing that it was above caring about mere language in a way that I think badly underestimates how much language matters in political life and how much it's what shapes really what happens. And to emphasize 
only policy outcomes makes a significant mistake in underestimating how much, say, the executive branch is shaped by the norms, the statements, the expressed intentions of the head of the executive branch. So we're seeing at the same time a real exodus of career professionals from the FBI, from the State Department, and to a lesser extent from other parts of the civil service on the basis of the really constant expressed contempt and disdain and denunciation of the deep state that's coming out of the Twitter account and out of Fox News. And on the other hand, a real licensing of abuse by ICE uh, on the grounds that everyone now understands that the official stance is that anything goes in immigration enforcement. So that, I'll say, reading the essay, that was the point that kind of um, perked my ears up. Um, just because I, I don't think I've, I've seen too many people make that connection between the president's very, not just aggressive rhetoric against immigration and, um, and immigrants, but also his laudatory rhetoric towards border enforcement agents. And since we know that the president's rhetoric does sort of encourage an atmosphere of, or an attitude of impunity towards doing that that job, can that like take a life of its own at a certain point, right? That even if, uh, you know, a future president, uh, the next administration pulls back on that kind of rhetoric, does the interplay between President Trump and immigration enforcement now create a playing off of each other that inculcates values that can't be easily kind of removed from the agency? Absolutely. I say in the piece that Speech and rhetoric are leading indicators. Policy is a lagging indicator. And that works in both directions. So say that in 2021, a new president is in place trying to undo abusive tactics. Well, by now you have a pre-existing culture at ICE that's been greatly amplified by four years of recruitment into the, into the ranks, by departure from the ranks from those ICE agents who I'm sure exist, who don't have a desire for abusive tactics, who aren't motivated by racialized dislike of immigrants and so on, you're now dealing with a much harder bureaucracy to move in a positive direction. It will take time. And the attitude has been absorbed by the people who are there even without the recruitment changes. And changing it takes time. I think that it's even a little bit worse than that, because if it starts to seem that the difference between abusive tactics and non-abusive tactics is just the difference between one party's side and another party's side, then it's hard for the next president to say, no, no, it's a real rule. Right. It doesn't at that point sound like a real rule. It just sounds like one side. I say something similar about the effect of Trump's waffling on the Article 5 security guarantee in NATO. Yes, the next president will almost certainly strongly reaffirm the American commitment to collective self-defense in NATO. But the precedent's now been broken that says, oh, one of the American parties might change its mind. This is no longer a standing rule. This is one side's preference. So you, you make this point also in the context of just the public at large, um, that how President Trump speaks, how he attacks 
his opponents, um, how he tr- attempted to legitimize the press, isn't, you know, those things are bad in, in and of themselves, but they also have this secondary effect of convincing uh, a sizable portion of the public, partisan Republicans, that doing, attacking the press, um, showing sympathy to white nationalists, that those things are are in accordance with being a Republican. Part of being a Republican is either doing those things or tolerating those things. And for me, as a reader and as an observer, as someone who's been on the sort of campaign trail-ish over the past year talking to Republican voters and seeing very much this happening in real time, I cannot I, I cannot figure out a way that the country kind of pulls back from that. Um, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how you know, how does um, a, a democracy that can really only work when all sides agree on some, you know, that power should be shared and that it's okay if I lose and that in, in our case in the United States, we can't, we can't tolerate um, these extremist, uh, racist extremism. How does, how does one begin to pull back from that if there's a, this very, you know, powerful voice uh, inculcating almost the the opposite values. I really have nothing <laughs> confident and happy that I can say. This has unfortunately been the kind of conversation that I've had ever since the election when people who think that I know something about politics would say, well, how do we fix? And I, I have no confidence that there's not really serious long-term damage being done to the public constitutional culture and to American political life. It might be that there's a difference between the white nationalist case and the electoral case. Uh, Trump's willingness to flirt with white nationalism, his willingness to employ people like Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon, his willingness to talk about the very fine people on both sides, that's really exceptional in national level American public life. And I would expect that the next Republican president would not return to that. That's not to say that white racism or the institutions of white supremacy in American public life go away. But I think that we will relatively rapidly see a return to the normal kind of public speaking about the rejection of racism as a feature of American public life. And it will always sit uneasily with the reality of American racial life. But we will at least get something more like the lip service affirmation that white nationalism is not what American national politics is supposed to be about. The delegitimation of political opposition, of electoral contestation, of there being another party, that's very hard for a party to come back from. And every week, it seems that more and more of the National Republican Party is getting caught up in and entrenched in this new approach. That really frightens me about where any possible leadership of the Republican Party can come from in the foreseeable future to try to put things back on track. I mean, sort of one one implication of this, of the argument is that anyone who thinks sort of de-Trumpification would be, it's going to be a straightforward process is, is wrong. That to the extent that the United States sees real kind of like democratic backsliding over the next couple of years, both in its institutions and in, in its public culture, it's really going to take a lot of time to get get us back to sort of the status quo uh, ante. I, th- I think that's right. Um, 
a lot of the motivation for me to write the piece was that on both left and right, I'm seeing various kinds of urges now to normalize Trump against the background of the pre-existing Republican Party, Republicans who want to celebrate tax cuts and who want to say that, who want to deny that anything much to worry about will insist that the tweets and the rhetoric and the speech, they're just distracting noise. And some progressives and Democrats seeking to impugn the whole Republican Party will say, well, this is what it's always been like. Look, it's perfectly normal tax cuts, military spending increases. It's not normal. And there are things that are being done by the Trump administration to American institutions and to American public and civil civic life by that speech, by that rhetoric. They change the public culture. They change the institutions. Does a normal Republican suddenly restore the FBI and the Department of Justice relative to the damage that's getting done to them? I, I don't think that they can do that just by announcing it. De- Detrumpification will take time and deliberate work and is I think there's no guarantee of its success. Just thinking off the top of my head, already you can see on the collegiate level um, among Republican Party organizations how you know, the influence of Trump is is changed how college Republicans are acting. It's certainly on the state level, um, state level politics. I'm from Virginia. I, I can very clearly see in Virginia politics how Trump has um, completely altered the norms of what is acceptable behavior among public officials. And so the kind of, I think the most infamous example right now is a guy named Corey Stewart, whose entire kind of appeal in the state is this um, unapologetic kind of neo-Confederate nostalgia. Um, and he almost was the party's gubernatorial nominee last year. And will likely, there's a pretty good chance he'll be the party's Senate nominee this year. And it, it is, even if you have, it does seem that even if you have uh, a dedicated number of Republican elites who, you know, in the aftermath of Trump decide that you know, it's time to, we need to push back against against what he brought, What's seated on down the line is gonna gonna be bearing fruit for for some time, which does make me think that like substantive de-Trumpification of the Republican Party is is probably far away. I think all that's right. It's not all new since 2016 or 2017 that there that there's open neo-Confederate nostalgia in Southern states Republican parties. That's far from being a brand new fact. There had been signs of progress against it. Right. Nikki Haley's career as governor was partly, especially in the wake of the Charleston massacre, it was partly a matter of genuine, slow but meaningful pushback against that presence. The overt racism of some kinds of anti-immigrant politics in the Republican Party. After all, Trump didn't invent Joe Arpario, and Trump didn't turn him into the kind of celebrity figure that he was in Arizona politics for a long time. But Trump has nationalized it and entrenched it and made it much more visible to the nationwide base of Republican voters. And I think he's stopped in its tracks the little bits of signs that we had seen over the previous 10, 15 years of progress against some of it. I have been speaking with Jacob Levy, a professor of political theory at McGill University and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us on Trumpcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
that's the show for today. Are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? You really should. It's a very active account. You'll get your money's worth, I guess. You don't spend money to be on Twitter, but you'll get value out of the follow. We're at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. We share links, we share stories, and you'll even hear about our live events. So hurry up, get on Twitter, and follow us. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon, and John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jamal Bowie, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.